Food Talk with Mike Kalameko is brought to you by Cento at CentoFineFoods.com, King Arthur Flower at KingArthurFlower.com, and Colavita at Colavita.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Hey, buddy. Welcome to the uh, post-Thanksgiving edition of Food Talk with Mike Colomeco. Mike Colomeco, you're your host. Hey, how how you doing out there? Radio, internet, streaming world. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving. I had a good one. Um, took it home quiet, just me, the family. One of those great heritage birds from Frank Reese. Some good side dishes a little early. I always hate that. Like, like 5 o'clock. I talk to, my kids want to eat at 4, so we ate at 5, but that's still too early for me. Um, but anyway, welcome back. I took the week off. I think everybody did. I think we were shut down for Thanksgiving Day. But we're back live. Great to be here. We've got a great show. We've got it jam-packed with guests today. Um, my first guest will be on a couple of minutes, Gabriella Gershenson. You may remember her. She was the dining out editor for the entire dining section, food section, Time Out New York. Then she was at Sever for three or four years. Now she's at Every Day with Rachel Ray. We're going to talk about this movement of new Jewish cooking taking place in cities, in New York specifically. Um, then I've got Chef Saul Bolton, who's had a restaurant here in Brooklyn. He's really one of the pioneers called Restaurant Saul. Um, he's a great guy. We'll intro him. He'll be after Gabrielle. And then at some point, as we're getting ready to uh, 15, 20 minutes left in the hour, we'll have Karen Page and Andrew Dornenberg in, a couple that have been together for a long time, written a lot of books specifically on wine, wine and food pairings. We'll talk about that. So three guests, my little folksy intro. Yeah, that's what they say on my Wikipedia page. I have a folksy style. Yeah, whatever. Could be worse, I suppose. Um, I like folk music, you know, alt-country, whatever. You can call me folksy. Call me anything you want. So it's Christmas. It's Christmas It's Christmas season. I walked here from the subway stop at Morgan here in, in, Book, in Bushwick, Brooklyn, the Morgan stop on the L train. And there's Christmas trees for sale on Bogart Street. Yeah, that's right. You know it's Christmas around Gotham City when there's trees all over the street. Uh, the tree at Rock Center is lit. I haven't seen it yet. I always make a point of going past that tree because it is gorgeous. I love that little plaza in New York. Um, I got a great Thanksgiving story. Years back, I used to do a show called Food Talk on WOR. It was a show that had been on the radio for the better part of two decades. Arthur Schwartz, Brooklyn native, son of Brooklyn, started that show way back in the early, early 90s. Um, and we had it for about 10 or 12 years, and oh, Arthur had a falling out with the station, which I completely understand. And then Rocco Despirito had it for a while, Tyler Florence for about six months, and then me for the last six years till I wrote it into the sunset. And I found out my first day on the job was, I think, September 16th of 2006. And around late October, they said, you know, Thanksgiving, you work, right? And I'm like, what? They go, oh, no, it's a huge day. It's a huge day for Food Talk. In fact, you, you got to come in really early. Like, you're going to do morning drive, and I'm, you're kidding why? And so a lot of people call up with recipes and questions and turkey stuff. So can you be in by 5 a.m.? And I'm like, dude, really? My show's live at 11. How about 6? So they said, okay, come in at 6. But you're going to do morning drive from 6 until 9 with the morning drive team. And um, one of the morning drive hosts then, the only other host that was on, on the air with me that day, I think, was Rudy, Rudy Giuliani, the ex-mayor of New York's ex-wife, Donna Hanover. Um and Donna was one of these prim and proper types, really sweet girl, drank like, I don't know, some kind of diet soda and brought with her little bags of like carrot sticks and celery sticks and pretzels and everything was organized. And, and because it's morning drive, she'd come in early, so she'd be wearing like casual clothes and have her hair up in a bun because those hosts had to be in by like 3.34 in the morning to get the show ready. Morning drive is huge in AM radio. So anyway, so I'm not a morning guy, so I got to be there at 6. I had a car service pick me up at like 5.15 at my apartment in the village. And the night before, I swore I was going to be a good boy. I swore, I swore, I swore. So I made a really early dinner reservation. Um, uh, Shane McBride, who's now the chef at Balthazar, he's, the, uh, he's a great chef. I knew, I've known Shane for years. Shane had his own restaurant at that point in the East West 50s, excuse me, the West 50s, some kind of steak-themed chop house restaurant. And um, I made a 7 o'clock reservation. Uh, met a couple of friends there and said, yeah, i got to be out of here by 10, 10.30, go to bed early. Well, one bottle of wine, 20 courses later, six bottles of wine. Then the chef sits down and we do a bourbon tasting. And <laughs> I took a subway home at I don't know what time of night it was, 1, 1.30. And I was 
absolutely wasted. I'm not proud to admit that, but when chefs hang out, it, it happens. It's like a side effect of chefs hanging out and doing bourbon tastings and just being chefs, and then you stand up and go, holy God, it's one one thirty. So I remember getting home at like 2 in that kind of condition when you've been drinking so much, you just kind of like take your clothes off, fall on your bed, and pass out. You just like gonk, you just fall asleep. But you're not really sleeping, are you? You're just sort of recirculating alcohol breath. And my alarm went off at 5 or some ungodly hour, and I just remember like my breath tasted like bourbon, and I was, I'm sure legally if I had to blow in one of those things, I was way on the other side of sober. Um, I was in horrible shape. But being an old pro, it didn't bother me. And I, I remember taking the car service down there and walking into that studio with Don Hanover. And I must have reeked like booze. And, and Don is looking at me <laughs> with this look on his face. I, it was like Phil Spector. I had those, you know, those Ray-Ban shades on. And I don't smoke, but I should have had a Marlboro hanging out of my mouth. And I remember doing that show live uh, for three hours with her. And it was absolute torture. Um, wanted to get myself something to eat after that. And it was a little cemetery. WOR is downtown New York. Um, on Grand, on uh, on Broadway, and it was a little beautiful old cemetery. I remember going out for my one hour break and like reading tombstones. So there you go. That's my cheery Thanksgiving story. Next year I was better. Um, do we have Gabrielle on the phone? Do we have Gabrielle Gerson on the phone? We don't have her on the phone. All right. So, so she's. It's maybe a miscommunication here. If not, we'll probably bring in a guest. Uh, let me just ask my. Does so? There's. She's not answering. She's not picking up. Okay. Maybe we'll try a couple times during the show, and if we get her, we get her. Okay. Great. Um, is Saul here? Okay, one second here. This is live radio, and we're doing... Okay, no worries. Oh, Karen and Andrew are early. Okay, well, Saul, Saul just walked in. Saul Bolton's here. All right, so... <laughs> yes, this is internet radio, folks. This is how we do it. That's right. We, um, it's like riding horses here, okay? It's old school. We don't have fancy engineers and receptionists and call screeners. So let's bring in, let's bring in Saul first, because Saul is my first guest here. We'll bring him in and have a conversation. Um, hey, Karen. Hey guys, how are you? How are you? Can Saul come in ahead of you? Sure. He's here, isn't he? Yeah. Did he walk in? Yeah. Thanks. Have a seat anywhere you want. Okay. Saul, come on in, brother. This is casual radio stuff. The microphone's hot. We are live, so if maybe that microphone, and you don't need headphones because we're not taking calls or anything like that. Good to see you again. Yeah, have a piece of pizza. Everybody have a piece of pizza. I should announce one of my. One of my perks, my agent. We'll come tomorrow. We'll come yeah, that's right. It introduced a great contract for me where on top of the incredible pay that I get, it's free pizza. Yes, at Roberta's. Sometimes I take it home in the Roberta's box, which is the ultimate hiptum, getting off that L train on 14th with the Roberta's box. Yeah, that's right. Fresh from Bushwick. New status symbol. New status symbol. I, you know, I'll sell it. I'll sell it to somebody on 14th Street. Anyway, let, let's go on with some interviews here. I told my WOR first day Thanksgiving hangover story. So if you want a piece of pizza, help yourself. You might have trouble with it because you might be on microphone. But. And then you guys are going to be on in like 20 minutes, 15 minutes. So you're just chilling. You're in, so just eat and hang out and have fun. So look, my first guest, and make, pull that mic a little closer to you. It'll sound a little better. The closer you are, the better it sounds. Okay. That sounds good. And you could, again, just kind of be right on top of the thing, like the music studios. Saul, you and I met back in 2001, I think. Woo-wee, a long time ago long, on Smith Street. Long time ago on Smith Street, and I think it was my first full season on PBS, and I'd heard about this Smith Street thing. So all you kids out there that just came to Brooklyn like yesterday and think it was always like this or it was like this a year or two ago, it isn't. So we're going to do a little Brooklyn history here. Um, Brooklyn restaurant history, I'm speaking of. So I'd heard about Smith Street, and I knew about Alan Harding and Patois. And I know he was part of that show. There was five or six restaurants lined up. And I remember going into all of those kitchens and eating the food, and your kitchen blew me away. I thought you back then were the most impressive kitchen in Brooklyn, although there was somebody down the street that had some kind of Zagat rating or Michelin. I was like, what the heck? They were good, but I thought your kitchen was just really disciplined and tight, and your servers got service, and you had sort of had the whole package together. So talk about your background pre-Brooklyn, and then what... Obviously, it was price and, and cheap rents, but what drew you to Brooklyn and, and what drew you to that spot? And give us the context of what it was like back then. Well, back then, I was coming from working at um, working for David Boulay at the Old Boulay for about two years and then working for Gilbert Lacoste when he was alive at La Bernadette and then helping to open Le Verbena yeah, I'm... and Les Zoo, which is now the Spotted Pig in the in the village. And my wife and I... Um, mostly because we had our first son and we were living on Carmine Street in the city and we had a one-bedroom rent-stabilized. 
in retrospect, we should have kept that, but we didn't <laughs> for $400 a month. You know, we were sort of pushed out economically. And, you know, you, you mentioned economics being part of the reasons that a lot of chefs have gone out to Brooklyn in the first place and continue to do so. And so we moved out there. So we were there. And after sort of getting a, a view of the people that live there, the housing stock, the proximity to Manhattan, the rents, which were incredibly cheap at that time, we decided to look for a spot there. I mean, we looked in the city. We looked <clears throat> Brooklyn Heights, Park Slope, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we ended up on Smith Street for a number of reasons. Very happy to be there. And we had a nice long run, 14 years. And time speeds by. And you talk about how, how tight we were and how we had such nice food now. But look at Brooklyn where it is now. You have Michelin three-star, Michelin two-star. You have Blanca here at Roberta's. Amazing food. So the trajectory of Brooklyn cuisine is just amazing. I mean, Brooklyn is the coolest place on planet Earth. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'm not claiming to be part of that necessarily, but I'm just saying it's become that, and, and for good reason. Yeah, and it has, and it's international too. I mean, I think there's a there's a French expression now, "Trey Brooklyn," that means like everything cool. Exactly. I remember I was in Poland a couple of uh, in September doing. We were filming in Poland, and there was a guy that opened up a little sandwich shop. He's never been to New York, uh, but it was this cool little sandwich. I, I never met him before, and it was cool and a funky little concept. And I I walked in, and of course, you know, he had the hair and the full sleeve, and this, and I said, "Dude, very Brooklyn." And he was like. Whoa. Like, that was the highest of praise. So if you're under a certain age, if you're under 35, to be paired with part of Brooklyn, living in Brooklyn, referred to as Brooklyn-esque, uh, yeah, that's about as, as, as high a compliment as it goes. But So you had these serious chops. I remember that. I mean, David Boulay may not be the greatest businessman in the world, but he certainly is a good chef. Uh, he's a great chef. Can't, you can't knock it. He, he I, still he, is. He's a chef chef. Um, Gilbert Lacoste, I think Dominic Cerrone was in that kitchen. Eberhard Mueller was in that kitchen back then. Yep, that was a touch before my time. Um, Eric Repair was actually there. Oh, okay. And oh, he after, was, he after was, Gilbert passed. Yeah, okay. he was running the show. Gilbert was still around. They would hang out together on the pass. Gilbert not wearing any underwear in his white pants and his white top <laughs> with his long hair. Smoke, you know. Yeah, I it know. It was a different world back then. The health yes. department would be none too pleased. But he, w- he was an amazing guy. And um, Eric was a was a very fair, very fair man to work for in retrospect. Great, great kitchen. And a great kitchen. I mean, that is the longest running three star uh, or four star New York Times kitchen uninterrupted since the opening when it was Mueller and Lacoste in that kitchen. They've had three stars since day one and really reinvented fish cookery in America. Yeah, I mean, it's just so, so incredibly consistent. And coming there from Boulay where we had two or three sauces on the plate and I arrived at Le Bernardin and the components were th- three. Four, maybe, maximum. But it was all about the perfection, cooking the fish perfectly every single time. And I just remember the incredible stress because we tested everything. Now you see everybody test it with the, the, cake, tester. the cake testers. And he had a slightly larger skewer that we had tested. And you'd take the fish to the pass to the almighty Gilbert or Eric. And you'd just turn around and they would be testing it. And you'd be going back to your station and just praying that it would have the perfect temperature. So, I mean, the, the consistency, and I've gone back there three, four times since then and dined, and every single time. And as working there, it's so simple, you know, chefs always want to be, or young cooks want to be challenged beyond belief and constant change. Going back there as a diner is just an amazing experience, and you really begin to appreciate what they bring to the table. It's, yeah, it's 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 completely solid. I'm sure you guys will. Now everyone's nodding your head in the studio here. I mean, it's just it's a great kitchen. It's been a solid kitchen. Again, two chefs in the entire span of a thirty some year run. I think at this point, or damn near thirty years, uninterrupted four star times, three star Michelin deserves it all. And someday I'll talk at length about the opening as I was sort of involved on the sidelines of that. Um, it was a different city back then. So let's get back to you. So so you come to Brooklyn. You're living here. You open up on Smith Street. How was business the early days? How was there a, a, a learning? curve a loop was it busy slow were you instantly a hit business well i mean i don't think i was ever a hit you know, business was good from the very beginning and it sort of continued to climb and then the recession recession the housing bubble burst and things sort of crashed and 9-11 had a, a yeah. big impact also so um i don't think we reached the heights business wise that we had before the bubble i mean the bubble was in it was during the bubble, it was insane. It was insane, the stuff that was going on in our tiny little place. But um, things things were good, and things are good now in our new spot and our other spots that we have, the Vanderbilt, which you visited also. I did, I did, which is great. That was sort of on, on Vanderbilt Avenue, kind of an early 
I mean, you see a lot of this now, this kind of cocktails paired with small plates. And I, am I misstating what the concept was? Yeah, we've got the – it's sort of cocktail, large cocktail program. Yeah, great cocktail um, program. American gastropub sort of riffing off Spotted Pig, making a lot of our own charcuterie, which grew into Brooklyn Bangers, which is our sausage company that we have now. And we were pioneers, too, in Vanderbilt Avenue. And now – at least 15 more restaurants have opened since we opened up. And there's some a lot of hot places there, too. Yeah. Great ramen places, Thai places, Japanese, American, on and on. Good coffee. Who, was, who, who were your contemporaries back then? I mentioned Alan Harding, and I think he was really one of the pioneers. And Alan told me the story, which is a great story, that he, too, has worked, was working in Manhattan, had worked in some really good kitchens, wanted to stay in Manhattan, was looking at these leases back then for, I mean, nowadays for Manhattan would be affordable, but, you know, twelve or 15000 a month, and was thinking, i got to sell a lot of chicken, man. I know the, you know, the restaurant, I, don't, I think people don't realize how hard it is to actually make profits in the restaurant business. Oh, yeah. So he was looking at Smith Street, which back then, in 99, 2000, you could have rolled a, a bowling ball down at night and not hit much, a yeah. few pigeons and a seagull. It was quiet. It, most of the storefronts were blacked out. There wasn't a lot of business. And he, he found a spot with a kind of a, a commercial kitchen in the back that was going to work for 1000 bucks a month. And he thought, shit, if this thing fails, I'll just live in it. I mean, what the hell? He's the type a, of guy that would. I'll have a ground floor apartment with a dope-ass kitchen. Who cares, yeah. right? Uh, the long story short, obviously it hasn't. Alan's done really well. But who else was around back then? What were some of the restaurants in and around where you were? Or I mean, I don't know if you'll recognize everybody, but of course you had uh, Charlie and Sharon at the grocery. The grocery, which we was the one that got them. all that. Of course. Was the, and they're still rocking. 27 and yeah. Doing their three things. Three stars, there I think, was, um, Dan Houle who I worked with at Boulay, who went on to um, Quilted Giraffe with Barry Wine, and he opened Banania, the Banania Cafe, which is an excellent spot, great corner spot. I remember he him. He ran that for a number of years. And then there was Smith Street Kitchen. And out of that, there were three partners. There's a partner now that is running um, a fantastic place right off of Franklin Avenue called Franklin Park that's an incredible beer garden. This, this guy, um, his name is Anatoly. And he has uh, Cornelius, Franklin Park, and he just opened a whiskey bar, and the name escapes me, but he's still going strong. Um, other people far away from us, but probably the person I worship more than any of these other great chefs, cooks, business people is um, Anna Klinger at Aldi La. Aldi La and her husband does the dining room, yeah. Park Slope, this beautiful dining room. Oh. He's a crazy guy who's got the crazy hair and he is a really great hair. exuberant and, personality. And she is in that kitchen. Solid, solid kitchen. She's amazing. Year after year after year. And she has two beautiful kids now. She's a beautiful woman. When I look for um, advice when I'm down, I go there for lunch. And hopefully she's around. You know, <laughs> But as I wouldn't dare call her. But um, she always makes me feel better and sort of sets me straight. So. I have a lot of respect for it. That's nice. Nice to have soulmates in this business you can talk to. Because it's, I know. Again, I, I think know. people – I always joke with chefs that people come into restaurants when they're busy and think, wow, this must be so much fun. How cool. It's like a party every night, dude. And you get to come out with your customers. You get this big ball. And then you're like, do you have any idea how little money we make? Yeah. If, I, if I know more you – know, so many chefs have really successful restaurants. They were single restaurants. At the end of the day, I know what they, I mean, they're them and the wives. They're the last people to get paid at the end of the year. Um, it's a struggle. It's it's a struggle. I remember when I left. I, I was the executive chef at the at the Ritz Carlton. Great corporate gig. I was thirty one years old back in nineteen eighty six, making you know a hundred and change with benefits. And I left that to go open my own restaurant. And I knew what I was getting into, but it was like. I never saw that money again for a long, long time, and I never—I didn't see half of it for a long time. It was just like get by and build the bridge. So you—you you had the—you had the foresight to buy the building on Smith Street at some point, didn't you? Yes, yes, yeah. We—we had—we were lucky. It was in the lease, and um, we were lucky to be able to buy it. It's sort of a retirement. You talk about small businesses not making a big profit, et cetera, and it is a struggle day to day. And it is a mom and pop business, and we do have kids, and we do have mortgages, we have all that stuff. So. Thank God, you know, because what are we taking with us at the end of the day? You talk about the Ritz-Carlton, a corporate gig. I mean, they're major trade-offs, but that's a lot of money. Yeah, I know. You're not necessarily thinking about the building when you go home and you're going to sleep. Right. It's not my, the compressor's not my problem. You've the got insurance. Hoods aren't my problem. That's you know? right. Health department, hey, fix that thing. All maintenance yes, stuff absolutely. breaks. Absolutely. I remember I, when I opened my own restaurant, we let, we, I left the Ritz to go open my own restaurant. That was the sacrifice I made. And I remember, like, suddenly, you just become a jack of all two. You, you are the refrigeration guy. You can fix the ice machine. You're up on the roof doing the hoods. Grease trap, I got that down. I was mopping floors. I remember from being an executive chef making a hundred and some grand to 
you know, the first year, I don't know what the hell we made. And, you know, next to nothing. And yeah, you'd come in at 7 in the morning and leave at midnight. And I was the guy that was mopping the floors and straining the stock and icing down everything and cleaning out the walk-in box because that's the way it was. That's, that's, that's a business. But on the other hand, the sort of satisfaction and the, the feeling that it is your business, that, yeah. you know, you can be yourself because – I mean that that's a huge. There is a big trade off, and there is a great satisfaction to running your own place. I mean, yeah, I found and I found that the, the the downside of being an executive chef, and I've talked to more and more people that agree, is especially in that kind of a corporate setting, is that you become much more executive and less chef. You're spending less time and less time doing what you actually dove in this business. What you loved. I mean, I started cooking at 13, 14 as a pot washer, but I worked my way through junior high and high school. And on my day off, my favorite thing to do is cook. I mean, when I have a night off in New York, I'm not going out. I cook in my, I mean, I love being around food in the process. Right. Um, talk about your new place because you've, you've, you've moved. And it's interesting. You're now in the Brooklyn the Museum. We're in the Brooklyn Museum, but I quickly, I want to rewind just a touch because last December we opened Red Gravy on Atlantic Avenue, 151 Atlantic Avenue. And uh, that was a wicked, intense experience, and it continues to be so. Amazing people there, amazing food. I love them. And, you know, I had an amazing dinner two nights ago there that I go into the kitchen and our chef de cuisine, um, Aisha, who's worked with Lydia and at Volce with Missy, et cetera. I go in there, and, and this is why we do what we do. And she is so incredibly passionate even now, you know, you get, you come close to crying. The food is so good. Mm, that good. Mm. So tell me about the con- the concept of that but place. Is it's, it's, so it's, a te- it's southern Italian. Yeah. the The whole deal was uh, focusing on Calabria Apulia, which uh. is a you know which is amazing cuisine and so different. And it's you're going to say, wow, that's too expensive. There's no way you could possibly ever cover any of this. Which that's up for argument, but Apulia, Calabria, touch of Basilicata in Sicily, which is that's a lifetime. Hell yeah. And that's Any a whole of bunch of places. cultures and a whole bunch of crossroads. That's a big palette to paint. Yeah. With. So but yeah, it's a work in progress. Very very intense opening. You can tell that I, I feel it. But the Brooklyn Museum, now we're there, and um I was approached about the Brooklyn Museum and I drive past it every day on the way to Saul, the old spot. And it's a beautiful, iconic museum. And Grand Army Plaza, the library has been redone. The museum yeah. has an incredible revamping. Also, that part of the part of uh, Brooklyn is popping, you know, and it's connected pretty intimately too to Vanderbilt Avenue, the Barclays Center, which we have two stands selling hot dogs there with Brooklyn bangers. Uh, and um, it seemed extremely exciting, and it, it's it's a very complicated thing. But uh, they're within 12 weeks with a Brooklyn-based, fantastic Brooklyn-based designers, Uhuru, who have pieces in the Smithsonian. They're, they're really furniture makers, but they're incredibly intuitive designers, too. And in 12 weeks, we turned a large, what used to be the gift shop at the Brooklyn Museum, into a really lovely dining room. Nice. And they had a kitchen that they had never used. Upstairs. So I was going to ask about that because that's the nightmare. How do you? Fit, where's the gas? Where's the electric? Where's the hoods? How do you fix? That's Dude, huge. That's it was a landmark. There. It was there, sitting there. It was sitting there unused for a year and a half, and there was a lot of money. We have the nicest exhaust system that you could ever imagine, but the design of the actual kitchen was not super duper, to put it nicely. But we did some tweaks to it, and we brought the entire staff from Saul. Which, in the interim, when we sort of tried to phase out, we tried to bring them to, you know, phase quietly, close Saul and open new Saul 2.0, whatever you want to call it, without much of an interruption. Of course, it's an opening and it does take time. And we um, had guys working at Red Gravy and at Vanderbilt and working Brooklyn Bangers at the Brooklyn Flea and, and doing all that good stuff. So we're able to bring our front of the house people, our back of the house people, the kitchen, the food didn't miss a beat. We added some new players to the team that are intense. I have a great – I mean, I have, I have a great pastry guy from Saul, Guadalupe Garcia, who's worked with me for 13 years, maybe 14 now. But I've, I've, joining him, I have a wonderful, wonderful pastry chef, um, Joanna Lange, who's amazing. So Lupe and Lange together, 
making amazing pastry. And we have a Paco Jet for the first time in our entire lives. <laughs> we have a walk-in yeah, freezer wow. that's wow. super, super cold. Um, we have a combi oven, which we never had before, that was there just sitting f- fallow wow. for years. And, um, you know, my co-chef de cuisines, Jesse Agravi and Michael Tyler, and I say co-chef de cuisines, and you think they'd be competing, but they're not. They're, they worked beautifully together at Saul, and they have such complementary talents to each other. You know, Michael Tyler, four years at La Bernadette, year at Per Se, Chops. EMP. Chops. Technique, technique, yeah. technique. Yeah. Jesse Agravi is the soul man. He's got great, great palate, a lot of soul, and he's all about flavor. So you put those two together, yeah. and it's a mighty machine. So we've got some great food that's coming out right now in the Brooklyn Museum. And it's interesting to see. You know, I remember, I mean, things like stadiums and museums were captive audience situations for many, many years where uh, you had them and you kind of had to feed them and it became lowest common denominator cooking for the most part. Um, Anyone that's ever been out to the Madison Square Garden or to the old Yankee Stadium would remember. They got you a hostage, you want pizza, great. It comes out of a microwave and it costs 10 bucks. F you, you don't like it. You like beer, it's, you know, $12 garbage. So, but then... It's changed, and I think that, again, I think Danny Meyer's been kind of a pioneer. In a City Field. City Field, a bunch of different levels, and MoMA, where suddenly Danny goes into oh, MoMA, and I, I work out at the Athletic Club, and I'm a member of MoMA, so I go there, days I have off, I park my bicycle, work at the Athletic Club in the morning, bicycle down, lock my bike up, do a quick hit at MoMA, and, you know, had Gabrielle there, and this, um, these amazing kitchens, and this, this sort of completely overlooked market of things like Ballparks. I mean, New York's a food town. San Francisco's a food town. Basically, big cities have become food towns. New York, the quintessential food town. Why not have great food in these destinations? How's business been for you at the new spot? Good? The new spot is good, and we're doing lunch. We've never done lunch before. We're jamming on the lunch. You know, talk to me in a year to really give you an an overview of the ups and downs of business and all that kind of stuff. But our old customers are all coming up there, making the trek. We've got parking. The two, three stops right there in Eastern Parkway, right in the museum. Um, We have a lot of new customers, neighborhood, people from Manhattan, obviously people, tourists, a lot more tourists than we ever had. We have the Jean-Paul Gaultier show right now, exhibition, which is, is jamming. You have a lot of folks coming through with that. But, you know, it is Brooklyn. As cool as we are, we are at a museum, and it's a challenge. It's definitely a challenge, and there is angst. And, you know, with any opening, there are obstacles to overcome. There's no doubt. Openings so. openings are <laughs> openings are brutal. Um, How did you find Aisha? Which, which kitchen was she in with Missy? The Avoche downtown? On Columbus Mad- Circle. Columbus Circle uptown. Okay, yep. I'm sure I've met her because Missy, Missy's just one of these great – I mean, there's so few women in this business. Um th- for a whole bunch of reasons, a lot of them are, are sort of understandable, but um, but few in terms of percentage overall. But I've met so many great women chefs coming up over the years, and I have to tell you, I remember when Missy took over Avoche. So AC had been there after his cafe ballooed for years. So here's this guy comes marching from downtown and grabs, I think, two or three stars from the Times. Killed it. The place was busy. It was AC's food. Immediately, yeah. Immediately, immediately. It was a big hit. It was his coming out party. And, and then I remember he left, and I sort of dismissed the restaurant as, you know, he's gone. It's his restaurant, man. I mean, I'm not going back. And I think the PR people that were doing it at the time, maybe Bullfrog or Balls, was twisting my arm. I was doing radio, so I kind of had to do stories. Every day I needed stories. So I, all right, whatever. And I remember going and having her food, just saying, who is this kid? Because even though she's from Connecticut and from around here, in a way, worked in New York, she kind of blew up in Chicago. That's where she yep. trained. And so I'm like, Missy Robbins, never heard of her. And killer food, but work ethic like there's, like there's no tomorrow. Missy's the kind of chef like you, like most chefs I love, that's in there at 8, 9 in the morning, goes to sleep at midnight, a lot of weeks work seven days a week, has a day off and just passes out and does laundry. Um, and her kitchen, I remember the kitchen downtown was... Almost all female, which I thought was so great. Her sous chefs, her line cooks. I think she mentored a lot of women coming up in the business. So how did you find Aisha? Who we? It was just a friend of, friend of a friend, basically. And Aisha's, it was profound. I mean, she, she was a career changer. She was a paralegal. And she went, to, this is a great story. I mean, she went to Felidia. Knocked on the door. Hey, I'll work for free. That classic thing. Yeah. They said, go away. Come back another day. And she kept coming back until they let her start to clean the place. Four years later, she left as a sous chef. And I can't think of a 
from watching Lydia on TV, I can't think of a tougher woman on the planet. And I think Lydia had an unbelievable influence on Aisha, who is a tough Brooklyn kid to begin with, like tough, from Bensonhurst. She's a badass. And Lydia imbued even more toughness, even more feeling for food, which Aisha has a passion for anyway, in a deep level, like her mom, her grandmother, yeah. her whole family. Yeah. It's a great kitchen. Oh. So, and Missy had a great influence also. I mean, but, yeah, it's, it's inspirational. It's so great to, to um, I hate to say this, but the, the youth is so inspirational. Oh, heck, you know. heck yeah. I don't like hanging around with old people, man. They're boring. People my age are like, leave me alone. You know, most of the kids I hang around with are 35, 30, 20, whatever. I mean, that's where the energy is. And, they're in, and, and, and you know it's a, it's, a, it's a young man's game. It's a young gal's game. Oh, yeah. I mean, being in, the, in this industry, on the floor as a line cook. It's a grind. It's, a, it's more than, it's, it's, it's like playing pro sports, man. At some point, your knees are gone, your feet are gone. You're, you lose a half a step. Uh, I, you know, I, when I think of how I, there was one point in my career when I was working at the Four Seasons restaurant on Park Ave for lunch. They let me they let me come in early, come in early, and then leave early, and then I would run over to the Maurice and I worked dinner service with Delouvrier. and I did that for six months. Line cook at lunch, line cook at dinner, two different restaurants. I don't know if I slept five hours a night. That's awesome. It was ridiculous, and I just I remember thinking like I couldn't do that now for a day, you know. But that was the advantage of being 23, 24 years old. Absolutely, your body can take it, your mind can take it. You don't have all the responsibilities that you have now. It's it's a very different thing, and it. It's amazing when you're at the age where you can completely immerse yourself and sacrifice every other aspect of your life. Because now that's the balance is still maintaining that connection, the passion for the food and being able to inspire your troops and keep in touch with your family, you know. It's it's a juggling act and you've been so successful. Congratulations, Salt. It's great. I haven't seen you in years. Great to have you here at Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. It's a pleasure. No, he's one of the one day champs. Give us a shout out. Name your restaurants one more time so we'll, because we're going to take a spot right for this. Saul's the owner of The Eponymous. The Eponymous Saul, the Brooklyn Museum, Red Gravy at 151 Atlantic Avenue in Brooklyn, the Vanderbilt at 570 Vanderbilt Avenue on the corner of Bergen and Vanderbilt, <laughs> and Brooklyn Bangers, which we're selling at the Barclays Center, Yankee Stadium. We'll be selling at the Prudential Center soon. Um, we're pushing that. We have a lot of products that we're working on that getting approved and trying to deliver tasty sausages to the world. I'm sure you're doing it, brother. Thanks for coming in. Saul Bolton, one of the Brooklyn Pioneers. Great to have you. Pleasure. We're going to take a quick spot, folks, uh, to give a shout-out to a couple of the underwriters that make this show possible and this station possible. And we'll be back with Karen Page and Andrew Dornenberg to talk about food and wine pairings and who the hell knows what else we're going to talk about. But we'll, we'll never be sure of things. Saul, thanks for coming in so much. No problem. Thank you. Hey folks, Michael Lomeco here. Any good chef will be honest with you and tell you about 80% of good results from cooking is good shopping. You have to start with great ingredients. So when I'm looking to make a canned tomato sauce at home, I use Cento San Marzano tomatoes, which I've loved using for years. When I had my restaurant, that's what I bought. When I was a chef at restaurants and I could supervise the purchasing, that's what I ordered. They're great. I actually had a chance a few years back to go visit the area where they're from because I'm always curious with ingredients what is the provenance? So we flew in in the middle of August to this little region just in the shadows of uh, Mount Vesuvius where there's great volcanic soil. And what I found out was these tomatoes come from lots of small family farms, little quarter and half acre plots where that's what they do. They raise tomatoes and sell it to the Cento factory that packs this tomato in the peak of the season in the middle of the summer. Cento nourishes the San Marzano tomatoes from start to finish with a 100% certified traceability program. Cento's San Marzano certification is the only one of its kind, assuring the consumer of authentic San Marzano tomatoes. So if you're looking for great canned tomatoes for great tomato sauce, look no further than Cento brand San Marzano. Mike Colomeco here. Uh, when I started my PBS show, one of the deals with producing a PBS show is you're always looking for underwriters, and I thought, let me let me. Start 
start first by going after people whose products I actually use in my kitchen. Um, I had a restaurant for years. I used Colavita olive oil. I did some research and found out that in the extra virgin category, it was the only Italian olive oil that was actually 100% Italian origin. There's a lot of stuff going on in that business that we don't really want to talk about, but um, a lot of the big brands call themselves Italian, have American, Italian flags on the labels, and their blends from tank farms from all over the planet pretty much based on price. Um, Colavita is the exception. Um, really love the oil. Been using it in my house. Reused it in my restaurant. Well, Colavita is doing something neat. They're doing a contest. If you go to italycontest.com or colavita.com, where there's a link, but again, Italy Contest is the more direct way to do it. They're doing a contest on substituting butter for olive oil and baking goods. The winning recipe gets a free trip to Italy, courtesy of Colavita. So if you're thinking about cooking with olive oil and you're a baker, Throw them your recipe at italycontest.com or visit colavita.com and click the link there. You may win a trip to Italy. King Arthur Flower, established in 1790, is America's oldest flower company. They're an employee-owned company whose passion is sharing the joy of baking and inspiring bakers worldwide. When King Arthur was founded in 1790, George Washington was the newly elected president of the United States. The company was sold by the Sands family to King Arthur Flower employees in 1996. They are now an ESOP company, 100% employee-owned, with a 100% commitment to quality. Visit them at kingarthurflower.com. And I'll start out with that correction. <laughs> All right, folks, we're live again here. We're, we got a new engineer. What's, and, uh, I'll, I'll give him a shout-out for a second. Evan? Is that his name? Evan? I got his name. Evan. Got a new engineer this year. So we're breaking people in. But he's a graduate of the New York uh, NYU's something, something, something school that has to do with radio and entertainment. And, <laughs> and who knows? But th- welcome aboard, Evan. So Evan and I are trying to get our, um, our signals together here. So <laughs> welcome back. So uh, the show's Food Talk, Michael Lomico's Food Talk. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. You know that because this isn't the broadcast thing. It's an internet thing. So you've obviously found us on Stitcher or you're live streaming us or you're iTuning us. In any case, welcome back. Um, Saul Bolton was great to talk to. My guests now are guests I've never had on this show because this show's new, but they were kind of frequent guests back when I did Food Talk at WOR. Um, I think I had a day, because that was six days a week, so it was a day I kind of devoted to themes, and one day was beverage, and I think it was Fridays, which sucked, because I actually went back to Cape May on Fridays, so I couldn't really drink, (laughs) and I'd be like, people would come in with like tons of wine and booze and mixology. My engineers loved me, uh, because I'd leave leave the studio at noon, and I'd be like, guys, take it, I'm not carrying this stuff back home, and I'm sure, you know, while they were playing around with their Adobe and their whatever, putting stuff on Enco and edits, they're basically getting wasted. <laughs> a lot of early bedtimes for me. All but the perks of yeah. radio. <laughs> and a shout out to my old engineer Clint Paul, who's engaged, getting married. He's got a band in in, in, in the city now, Men in Wales. It's doing great. Yeah. Uh, Clint's a good guy. He was. We, we yeah. had tons of fun working together. So welcome, I guess. Now Thank hold you. on. This is by way of a long introduction. Karen Page and Andrew Dornenberg, welcome. Great to be here. You guys, so happy to be here. Been a couple for. How many? I don't want to age you. <laughs> we, we, we just celebrated our 28th anniversary of meeting each other over the Thanksgiving holiday weekend. Which was so cute. So uh, um, I, I don't want to give a shout out for Facebook because I'm a little too old for Facebook, although I'm on it. <laughs> We're all too old for As Facebook. a reluctant participant, but I'm yes. like, you know, I'm part of the AARP group that <laughs> posts something about once a year, like a, a <laughs> picture of a, a puppy or something, just so no one will look again. But I, but you had this wonderful love post about the night that you met Karen. Yes. Oh, you know what? surprised yes. me with can, that. Can, me the, tell me the story because it is so cool. And if there are any couples out there listening, <laughs> okay, uh, so. it always is kismet. I've always been fascinated by you know all of us, depending on what type of personality we're, we're going to plan our lives and you know target our trajectory in as much as we can. You know, this career, five year plan. I'm going to work for this I had chef. A list of traits that, and the guy that I was going to marry, none of which Andrew had. <laughs> exactly. And yet I fell he- head over right. heels. So go figure. No, that's my point. Oh, is that it, the big stuff always is kismet. The big stuff exactly. is always yes. just like. Fate decides, oh, I'm going to tap you on the shoulder. This is the guy, or this mm-hmm. is the job, or this is right. where you're moving to. And then suddenly a, a world opens up that wasn't planned. So mm-hmm. t- just just for the, the sentimentalists among us, tell us about the night that you met and how it was arranged. Okay, I'll give, give it the start, and then Karen will fix it all. Um, I was visiting New York for the very first time with my roommate uh, from Boston. I was living in Boston and working in the restaurant business, very first trip to New York. 
And we had a mutual friend because in the day, that's when you could commute between Boston and New York City on uh, Trump Airline. People Express. People Express. Yeah, like I remember for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had to fly to yes. Europe on that. So, yes. so we, we had a mutual friend who lived in Brooklyn, and she would come up and see us in Boston. She goes, and we said, oh, we're going to New York. She goes, oh, you can stay in my apartment in Brooklyn and call Karen Page. She's the funnest girl in New York City. So, of course, we're going to make that call. And we made that call about 15 times. And finally got a hold of Karen at work on a Saturday night after Thanksgiving during Thanksgiving weekend. And, and I had been yes. away for Thanksgiving up in Hartford visiting mm-hmm. friends of mine from college. And so I came back through my office at that point was um, Park Avenue South, right very close to Madison Square Garden, uh, Penn Station. So I'd taken the train and I thought, you know, I'm just going to knock out a couple hours worth of work and get ready for Monday morning because I'd been out of town for a while. And so um, I checked my voicemail, and there are these messages from these guys, and I didn't know. My friend didn't tell me that she was giving my number to anyone. I'm like, oh, Who no. Are these yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, Pull the blinds yeah. down. Indeed. Indeed. And so um, we, we kind of connected on the phone first, and it's there. sort of like, um, now, who are you? <laughs> and I said, oh, Robin gave us your number, and she said, you know, this is our first time in New York, and this is Andrew's first time in New York, and we just wanted to get together for a drink and hang mm-hmm. out, and I just kind of took pity, but I thought, I don't want to hang out with a couple of, you know, out of towners from Boston. Right. Right. If I show up and these guys have Come red on. socks hats exactly. on, I'm out. So how would you screen yeah. someone? If you, no, Back I'm in the day. That's right. Like, before well, where Google. are you? Yes. Right. And I thought if they're at like a Bennigan's or something, it's like, I'm not going. Right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Who has? I'm that's not right. going. Thank you. Yes. So yes. they said, we're, we're at this club. What is this place called? Oh, it's called the Pyramid Club. It's like, okay, if they're cool enough to make it to the Pyramid Club where I used to dance with my friends on Friday and Saturday nights. Lower East Side, Avenue B or something like funky joint. Okay, if they're yes. cool enough to make it there, I'll go meet for one drink. It's like, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm kind of busy, but yeah, let's have a drink. So anyway, drinks turned into dinner. Mm-hmm. Dinner Here turned in Brooklyn. into mm-hmm. dancing at the Palladium. Same night. Yeah. Same night. Yep. Same night. And, we'll, and the rest we'll, is we'll freaking history. We'll give you history. the PG version and leave yeah. it at that. <laughs> no, that's great. But we've been together ever since. That <laughs> that's night. great. Sparks flew. That's great. <laughs> yes. Congratulations. Yes. And you, now I should also set this up. I don't have, I brought notes, but of course I never pay attention to the notes that I bring. I think I do the notes just to get my head ready for the show exactly. before the show exactly. and then I ignore them. But you have won James Beard Awards for your writing. Just I mean, two. Ju- just two. Mm-hmm. So two James Beards. What, what else? And, and how many books have you guys published? Oh, God. Uh, Okay, now you're challenging our memories. Two James Beard Book Awards. The first was for our first book, which was called Becoming a Chef. That came out in 1995. And the most recent one was for the Flavor Bible, which came out in 2008. And then we won the IACP which Cookbook is of the Year great, Award. Great, because that's just industry insiders. Yeah, yes. yeah. exactly. Uh, totally, completely honored uh, to win that for What to Drink with What You Eat, which is and a great book. Which is a great. You. So that's kind of well, we're going to stay on that topic. Which, by here. the way, also won the George Dubuff Wine Book of the Year Award. So this they year. called it a cookbook. No, <laughs> the same year okay. they called it a cookbook. They called it a wine book. I don't care what they call it. We're just thrilled that <laughs> the book won the awards. Yeah, it's great. I think Kermit Lynch had a book that won the Dubuff one mm-hmm. year, um, and he's done a lot. I mean, I don't drink his Beaujolais much, but he's done. A a lot for the region, mm-hmm, and yes. speaking of one of my favorite wines now, when I look at restaurant menus now and what I drink at home, I just love Cru Beaujolais. They've had some great oh, vintages yeah. since 05. Yeah. They're super food friendly. There's something about them. But talk to me about Food Lover's Guide to Wine and what to drink with what to eat or whatever that because that's a great <laughs> that is a, that book is almost. I mean, it was a brilliant premise because you sort of have it both ways. You'll first half of the book, it's, it's two halves, and one of them is pairings by wine varietal mm-hmm. and weight and style, and then the other half is by food. Right. So it just exactly. sort of connects everything, and you have snippets from all sorts of top brilliant sommeliers. talking, top sommeliers, exactly. top chefs. Daniel Ballou. Yes. Yeah, it's, cra- it's crazy, crazy. Mm-hmm. So talk about that book, and then we'll talk about what you brought in for us to drink Well, today. with what to drink with what you eat, you know, this is tis the season, because, you know, God love it, it's the book that keeps on going, and it's still in the top five wine books, best-selling wine books in America, and people still put it on their wish lists on Amazon. So it's so nice to see that. So it's made a lot of holiday lists. But I think the reason is because people only want to know so much about wine. You know, they don't always want the in-depth information that yeah. we put together in the Food Lover's Guide to Wine. What, what's the great thing about what to drink with what you eat is you can look up just enough about wine. You can know just enough to get just the information you need. And if you don't want to know any more than that, you don't have to. So it'll tell you what to drink with Pad Thai, what to drink with a, God forbid, Hostess Twinkie. <laughs> um, Sauterne? I don't know. What do you yeah. mean? 
<laughs> rose is drinking. <laughs> Moscato dusty. Moscato, you want the bubbles. Okay. Exactly. All right. You need the Something bubbles. Something to break apart that <laughs> high fructose corn syrup and, and the 850 other ingredients that we don't know right. what they are. That, yes. Oh, that's funny. We're yes. happy to take advice on that one. But yeah. I think but it's a great book because I think your premise is, look, I, I am, I'm, what am I, 57 now, and been drinking wine since I was a kid, Italian-American. I remember I was drinking wine underage. My grandparents had mix it with water as I was a kid. It yeah. was part of the culture. He had like exactly. homemade wine in West Philly. Um, and then coming up as a chef in the 70s and 80s, back then most of the good restaurants were French and most mm-hmm. of the menus were deep with Burgundy and Bordeaux. Mm-hmm. So I sort of developed a palate with those, but long story That's short a is... Bad thing. Yeah. No, no, no. The long <laughs> story short is I still drink wine with dinner every night and my budget's good. like 15 to $25 because sure. it's expensive and I've yeah. got kids to support and I'm not a rich sure. guy. And I don't geek out on it, and I'm still learning all the time. I mean, yes. I'm still. I think as, the, as are we. The wine yes. world exactly. is changing. I'll go into a good store. I live on the Lower East Side now, and I'll mm-hmm. go to like September Wines on the corner of Ludlow by me, and I'll go in and I'll put my glasses on and I'll spin. And there's these varietals that I've never heard of from Italy, oh, totally. oh, sure. from France, and I'm yeah. like, "What is this thing?" And the guy mm-hmm. goes, "I think you're gonna like it. I know what you like. I think you're gonna like it." So <laughs> that's the best I, thing. I, but I all you need to know about yes. wine is you kind of what you like. Right. Pair exactly. up. What is your palate like? Mm-hmm. Then find wines that are in that. So your book is a huge aid that way because it uh, you know we don't need to know the soil typicity you we don't. don't need to know no all I mean, that you, you can learn that you if, you want, and if you want to if you want fascinating yes. i mean yeah. the world of wine the more you learn about it the more fascinated you are and it pulls you in and you get excited about trying all these different varieties and i think we might have spoken to you before about the wine century club which if you go online and google it it's a club for anyone who's tasted more than 100 different wine varieties which doesn't sound that hard when you think about it in the beginning but you can get to maybe 40 50 even 60 pretty quickly but then beyond that it starts becoming a challenge to try different ones and and in the case of one of the wines we brought today um, the uh, grape is a Macabo but it's also known as Viura you can't count as as both because it's the same grape (laughs) known by two different names one in Spain and one in France so that kind of thing you've kind of got to you know over qualify for something maybe with 110 grapes so that when once they mm-hmm. take out the duplicates you'll hit the 100 mm-hmm. but it's a lot of fun they send you a free certificate suitable for framing a little test event to put around your neck oh, and, i have to you know, i have to bragging think about, I, yeah i'm not sure if i could i mean i drink one all the time and 100 stuff because you're you're when you like you said you get to 40 or 50 i mean so much of if you're drinking bordeaux it's cabernet sauvignon merlot petit Cabernet Franc. Right. You can also be drinking Cabernet Franc from Loire Valley. It doesn't qualify as a different varietal. Exactly. You're drinking Chardonnay from all around the world now. Sauvignon mm-hmm. Blanc could be a Bordeaux Blanc. Could be uh, a Chevernay. Again, that's one varietal. That's yes. right. A million different expressions of it around the planet. Yeah. Yeah. But still, you haven't moved up a varietal yeah. yet. Yeah, no, you will be like exploring Portugal you know, for Trigo Nacional and Spain and all these other places, you typically don't drink wine. And that's the blast of it. Because, it, you know, again, it's not expensive to do that sort of thing. You can get a lot of great wines. Like a Bernarda from Argentina for 15 bucks. And that's going to be a great food-friendly wine, you know, for, you know, any of your heavier dishes. But so it's a blast. It was a lot of fun to do. And speaking of, it's funny you mentioned that because I was in Portugal last year for the first time. And we stayed down south, and I never had that wine before. It was great. Yeah, uh, yeah. Turista Nacional. We actually did a. We actually went to a, a vineyard where the guy, the the uh, winemaker, led us blend our own bottle of wine. It was kind of mm-hmm. cool, mm-hmm. and it was like, two teams that he paired off, of and they got to be yes. blend theirs. And I, I mean, there's so much good winemaking coming out of all, all, from everywhere now. And exactly. I think the, the less known the area is, the more values are coming out of it. I mean, champagne is so well known. Everybody's asking us about champagne. Value and champagne? And I don't think so. <laughs> time of year. We right. steer people who are in budgets away from champagne this time of year and toward other sparkling wines all around mm-hmm. the world. Right. And it, it, I mean, Prosecco is taking off you know, by leaps and bounds because I think people fell in love with bubbles by drinking champagne. And they're like, okay, you know, my pocketbook isn't champagne, Correct. but I've got champagne taste. Where do you point me? And so there's some very good values to be had still uh, in Proseccos and other well, sparkling Well, since we're here and mm-hmm. the holidays are upon us, talk. Let's, sure. let's stretch out that one out a little bit. I love the from the Languedoc Roussillon, the cremants that they make, and the, sure. yeah. you know they have a couple of different. What's the other bubbling? Because actually, I think the, the Dom Perignon on his way to Champagne stopped in the south of France, and was it Limoux? Mm-hmm. There's another one I had, and, and oh, uh, Cremant d'Alsace. Cremant d'Alsace is great. So good. Regions wonderful with a great tart flambe. Um, you know, mm-hmm. even sparkling sake. I mean, if you've never had I've sparkling never had sake, it. it's, it's some great. people I've called it sort of a chick drink, but um, <laughs> I'm a woman. What can I say? Hey. I think it's a lot of fun, uh, really delicious. Um, Cava from Spain, mm-hmm. sure. Oh, I mean, because that is also made in the same method, Chepinois, as they use in Champagne, as opposed to Prosecco, which is made through the Charmant method, which is sort of a bulk 
wine tank method. It's in stainless tanks yes. if you've been so to vineyards. Get... And, and there's some and good, there's that, what's the one, is it New Mexico, G-R-U-E-T, Gruet. Oh, yeah. It's yeah, crazy. I remember having yeah, really excellent. good stuff, very austere, very clean. Yeah, tiny you bottles, know, not yeah. a big yeasty and nose. really reasonable. And actually, they may also make a huge variety. I would say go on to winesearcher.com because Gruet. Winesearcher.com. And you can find it. And But they also make um, a sweeter style wine, a sparkler that doesn't always make it out here but could be shipped, that sort of thing. So Gruet is great. I think really one of your house wines needs to be right now is a sparkling rosé. Mm. And it doesn't matter where it's from, but it's just so food friendly. You can get them for 15 or less. You can always spend more, of course. I mean, if you want to get a, a beautiful sparkling rosé, like look to Iron Horse. They well, make incredible sparkling rosé. And that's your anniversary. That's what you poured at your wedding. If I'm not mistaken. We did. So, yeah, I, no, I, I remember I that. Wedding, wedding Cuvée. Cuvée yeah. was at our wedding. Yeah. Yes. But, you know, it, I think a rosé will hit, take you from appetizers all the way through, you know, some lighter uh, entrees and even into cheese or dessert. So, again, it's just a great it's, – it's, you should have it in your house all the time, but it's just a great one to have on hand for the holidays. And from California, is it Schaffenberger's, an old house that does good champagne? Absolutely. Yeah. They have yeah. yeah. They're excellent. There's some, and is there, are there any from upstate New York? Is sure. I'm, well, if you go to the Finger Lakes, yeah. you can uh, get um, from um, Constantin Frank. Uh, right, that's celeb. the label. Yeah. It's a sparkling Riesling. And so there are drier versions and sweeter versions um, that I, I adore them all. And I'm, mm-hmm. I've always been a proponent, or for some time now I've been a proponent, of trying to get people, instead of just drinking sparkling wines or champagne in specific, but sparkling wines around the holidays and before meals, mm-hmm. to, to, to David's point, um, drink it with food. Because if you think about, think about oh, champagne. Yes. What are the two grapes in champagne? Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. Maybe the two greatest grapes on the planet. Yeah, so, I think you can find something more versatile. Yes, thank you. So <laughs> do we have food friendly going on here? And you can have a different blend of it from brut to not so brut to rosé where you're yeah. going to have a little color and a little tannin. And then you think of foods from, from fried foods Absolutely. to dried meats to salumi to cheeses where you want bubbles anyway. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, lighter meats, seafood. I mean, champagne, I, I drink champagne. Even bef- sushi. It's sushi, fabulous. Yeah. Fantastic yeah. with sushi. Yeah. Drink it with... Kills with Asian food. Yeah, drink it before the meal and with the meal and throughout the whole thing. It's great. I couldn't agree more. Always in our house. Yeah, mm-hmm. so we actually brought one bubbly tonight. And, and, you so know, tell me we, what you have here. What's in this one? We have one really <laughs> esoteric and one kind of, uh, one that we thought that everybody can find. So they have it at Sherry Lehman. It's the um, Rosa Regal uh, Brocchetto d'Aqui. I know so this wine. This is yes. a great one. It's not exp- It's not terribly expensive. I don't want me to say what other people would consider expensive. It's 12 bucks. Like, oh, that's, in, the, in the range of 12, yeah. 13 bucks. It's hard to find anything um, drinkable yeah. under that. I yeah. mean, that's yeah. kind of the bottom. It's, it's sweet, red, sparkling. I mean, that says holidays to me. Um, <laughs> what's beautiful about it, it's very enough, you can serve it for brunch around the holidays. You can serve it with as a dessert, um, just like you know, in a champagne flute. Has a light a tint to it, kind of a rose color, a strawberry exactly. note, raspberry. right? Big it strawberry notes. Fruit. It plays <laughs> yeah. up against chocolate beautifully. I mean, I love it. It's incredibly refreshing, and just like Moscato um, Dusty, which mm-hmm. I mentioned previously, it's so versatile at dessert time. I think this for people who love Moscato, they're like, well, what else do you think I'd like? <laughs> and it's like, okay, well, have you tried Brocchetto? And no, but they run out and they get it. And you know, yeah, it's and great, it's, so and, it's, and it's light and it's refreshing, so it is nice at dessert also for that reason alone. It's, it's like, uh, uh, if someone's gonna pour me Sauterne or vintage port, I'm gonna say absolutely, thank you, more please. But if you want something just sort of light and fun, send it off with a smile. That's a great little bottle. And they of wine. have it everywhere, so yes. you don't have to be frustrated that you can't find it. Yeah, you don't need it's wine Rosa searcher for that. It's Rosa and Sherry Lehman and better wine stores everywhere. <laughs> they everywhere has them, and and this other one that's more esoteric with this it funky little top on it for the first time. Um, and we just, we can't get over it. Um, this, is it in this glass? Yeah. yeah. This is um, a Reef Cell Ombre. So or the Reef Cell, it's a um, Vendu Naturel. It's a su- natural sweet wine. So the grapes are picked mm. late. Mm. And the um, Ombre, it's sort of an amber, uh, amber color. Um, this is Heritage du Temps. It's from Singla, S-I-N-G-L-A. And this is a 2005 vintage, which I think is much friendlier than the last uh, mm-hmm. vintage of 2003, which was very hot. Um, but it's this is $56, so it's a special occasion. But you don't need a lot, just like a little dessert, glass of dessert wine, which is maybe an ounce mm-hmm. or two or three tops. Um, you can have it with uh, nuts. You can have it with cheese. You can have it with chocolate desserts. It's got some oxidized Yeah, I was going to say, it's slightly Madeirized. So so tell me about the style. But it's not as heavy as uh, Sherry. No, No, I think it's actually, it's a very, it sort of reminds me of Oloroso, a lighter PX Sherry. So the nutty Oloroso, Mm -hmm. the sort of the raisiny uh, PX Sherry. So what's cool is this is from Languedoc, Rousson. So what's funny about this wine is it's right across the border from Spain. 
Now, here's a sentence I've always wanted to say. So, Mike, when we saw you in the south of France... Um, <laughs> oh, by the way, what's that hysteric? I forgot about that. That was at the jazz festival. Yes. Gerard Bertrand. Exactly. Oh, this charismatic, gorgeous, big, six-foot-three ex rugby player. No, Gerard said he's such an advocate, because his dad was a vigneron, I believe, and his dad passed young, and he had this full-on rugby career, and decided to go into the family vineyards, and it's just thrown his energy into... And we see his wines everywhere. Oh, yeah. Oh, wines everywhere. A lot of them are ex- yeah. very accessibly yeah. priced, but oh, yeah. great distribution. You can find them. Yeah, and, and he's got bio, yeah. a lot of organic. Yeah. Oh, I think all those vineyards are organic. And actually, and, this one we have here is biodynamic also. But what's fun about it is that in that region is when we were down there, we were served paella. We're like, we're in, the, we're in France. We're getting paella. And they're like, well, yeah. It's like, well, you know, Spain is just a few kilometers away. They have bullfights right in that part of France. Yeah. Bullfighting so, is huge so in that part of France. Fun fun so when I taste it, I'm like, I expected one thing and got entirely another. But I think this is an incredibly food-friendly wine. It's 16% alcohol. So... Lower than a lot of cabs, unfortunately, You don't want to drive days. home to Cape May afterwards. <laughs> no. But it's a, I think it's a fun one. Um, I think it pair really good with chocolate and hazelnuts, chocolate and pecans, any sort of nutty oh, thing. And we did bring oh, yeah. some chocolate. We have some lilac chocolate so you can compare. Test and, the theories. Yes. But uh, it's a, just a, a fun, interesting one. And I think what's fun about the holidays is an opportunity to try something new. Break out of the rut. Bring some, a different sparkle. If you're at a party and there's going to be 12 different bottles, you know, everyone's bringing something different. Well, bring something different and really have some fun. And then talk to your friends over it and say, what do you think? What do you think? Keep, go back and forth where you're trying it and try some food So with give it. me the label again so we, we can have mm-hmm. listeners who are curious as to what we're Absolutely. talking about. Find it on winesearcher.com or whatever they're going to use in the Google search. Sure. Mm-hmm. It's the 2005 Singla, S-I-N-G-L-A, Riveso, that's spelled R-I-V-E-S-A-L-T-E-S, love the French, Ambra, <laughs> A-M-B-R-E, Eritage, H-E-R-I-T-A-G-E, Du, D-U, T-E-M-P-S-Tant. Which means who knows what, but you'll get to love the French labels. You need a decoder <laughs> ring to figure it out. Right, um, yes. But this so part of France, the Languedoc-Roussillon, for, for a while I actually worked for their um, – they opened up a New York Maison. Mm. And um, uh, I was kind of a food part of it, but I would I, I, I was discover the region from traveling there, love the wines, uh, and have been able to travel pretty extensively around there. And right around where this is from is where Bonules comes from. Which yeah, is another right. fantastic another dessert wine. Yes. Like one of the peak pairings with chocolate. That, you, I think it's my if you're favorite. you're a chocolate fan yeah. and you think chocolate can't taste any better than chocolate, <laughs> chocolate and banyols, yes. even better. And there's we another another grape that's also in Lanoc Roussillon, but it's further. Banyols sits right on the water. The sl- I don't even right. know how they harvest it. The slopes are. Mm-hmm. We filmed there once and I was worried about everyone dying, <laughs> myself included. Uh, yes. There's another one called M A U R Y, Maui, that's yes. from up in the Pyrenees, but in that same yes. region. So it's another similar, chocolate pairing. Yes. Very delicious. So, shout out if you're thinking for the holiday. If you're having chocolate, chocolate-based desserts, and you'd want to get past the boring, you know, port or sauterne pairings, go for Banyuls, go for this. B-A-N-Y-U-L-S. I'm sorry, I just assumed that. B-A-N-Y-U-L-S. Superb wines. And this other one that somebody mispronounced called Maury or something like that. M-A-U-R-Y. M-A-U, I know how to spell it. M-A-U-R-Y. Kind of kind of esoteric, and as you said, I think it'll kind of, unless your friends are wine geeks, people are going to be like, what is this Actually, the person who turned us on to Banyuls the first time was Jean-Luc Ledoux at Danielle. We're having this chocolate dessert, and he pours us, we're like, Banyuls? So um, if you do need to research one, go to check out Ledoux Wines. Um, that's my guy. So Yeah, Jean-Luc, Jean-Luc was on the floor. Jean-Luc's an amazing guy. Here's this French guy, completely French. Still has a French accent. He's been in America forever. Um, he has a little goatee. He loves me. I bump, Rock and I, roll lover. Dude, I bumped him at Wilco one day. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, dude, what do you I'm like? What do you mean what I'm doing? Nels Klein, my favorite guitar. You know, it's, like, <laughs> it's Wilco. Yeah, it's Wilco. Of course I wouldn't miss this. And so, uh, But Jean-Luc's funny because he came from France to the States didn't really know much about wine at all, was living in Queens, yes. and right. was dating a girl, an American yes. girl, whose dad introduced him to who knows what. Like, they were, went out to dinner at his dad's house or something, and his dad opened up, like, a Petrus or a Cheval Blanc, or one of these, okay. you yes. know, first growth. So, so Jean-Luc made a good first impression, apparently. <laughs> no, it was the other way around. Right. Oh, I'm no, sorry. No, well, wine Jean-Luc got, good first oh, pardon impression. Me. Jean-Luc yes. got turned on yes, to wine by his American girl. We actually girl. told yeah. that story in Dining Out, right. 1998. It's hysterical. Third book. Because yes. everyone that knows Jean-Luc now has figured he was born and raised in a vineyard and grew up as a... Thinks that of all yeah. the French guys like yeah. Michel Couvreau at uh, Per Se, you know, he got his start and he told his parents, you know, I'm going to go become a sommelier. He, they said, "What's that?" I mean, for his, <laughs> I mean, he's from France, but he's from a, uh, I think it's Normandy. Yeah, they, so he's from they a, drink a cider. cider. They don't. It's not a wine uh, town. Yeah. So yeah. lo and behold, Calvados and, and cider. Yeah. So give us a shout out for your books again. Uh, my guests sure. have been Karen Page and Andrew Dornenberg, husband wife team, twenty some books together, two beards, an IACP award, and the, a 
Partridge in a Pear Tree. Partridge in a Pear Tree, the books sell. <laughs> and if you're thinking of holiday books for the holidays for your friends that want to get to know more about wine or want to increase their wine knowledge, the last two. Food, uh, the the, the what, most recent, uh, What to Drink with What You Eat is huge uh, this time of year. Um, and then the Flavor Bible, of course, if you're looking to come up with new dishes, new cocktails, new cupcakes, it's all there for you. And next year we'll have uh, the Vegetarian Flavor Bible. I know, we'll I saw that in the pipeline. We'll have, we'll have you on before that a couple of times, I'm sure. Thanks for coming awesome. on. Awesome, anytime. Sure. It's Great always our pleasure, you. Mike. You're the best. Thank you, guys. We've got to wind down the show. It's an hour, and they, they pull the plug on me after an hour. They, they throw pizzas <laughs> at me. Um, <laughs> it's been great to do another edition of Michael Michael's Food Talk here from Heritage Radio Network, Bushwick, Brooklyn, the Morgan stop on the L train with Christmas trees for sale on Bogart Street. It's that time of year. We'll do a couple more shows before the holidays. Um, we'll figure out what we can do around Christmas. I'll keep you all posted. But, folks, take care. Be well. See you next week. We'll be back. Take care. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website, or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>